0: Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, the founder of Future Women, a club to connect, learn and lead. If there was one person who best represents our values, every woman for every woman, it's feminist icon, Wendy McCarthy. Wendy is a born leader. Her contribution to this country was recognised in 1989 when she was made an officer of Australia. And at 80, she is still leading. She's a confidant to some of the nation's most significant figures, men and women. She's also an advisor to future women. In this episode, Wendy tells women to take control of their lives, take risks, and warns the fights are not all in the workplace. Here's the one and only Wendy McCarthy.
1: Today I thought would be a good day to reflect on the changes that I've been part of for the last 50 years. <clears throat> Once a history teacher, sometimes it's hard to stop, but I'll try and make it fun and interesting. So where does it all start for me? I grew up in Australia in the 50s and spent all my primary school years in a one teacher school. That seemed perfectly normal to me. And as I was always the only one in my class, I always came first. I thought it was the normal position. (laughs) When one or two other children came by, they got number two spot. And I don't think in my primary years I ever had other than the number one spot. And also, I was the firstborn in my family, so of course I was number one. That all came to a rather crashing halt when I went into the local high school in Forbes, and I was going to board at the Anglican Hostel. And suddenly, I wasn't number one. I wasn't all that cute. And I was certainly hopeless at maths, but I was a good reader because most of my primary school years, and I rode a pony to school, sounds idyllic and it was a lot of fun, um, I would just sit around, and listen to ABC Radio children's programs and read, which is more or less what I do now. <laughs> so, but I had scholarships to pay my boarding fees. And I knew that if I did not perform, I would have to do correspondence. That would mean that I would have no friends. Because you know what? Being on your own in a class and being number one sounds good reflecting, but actually it could be quite lonely. I probably talked to my pony right more than I ever had a girlfriend at that stage. Words like career and leadership were just not part of a polite girl's vocabulary. A leader we knew from all the poetry, all the reading we did, was a male hero, directing from the front, rather like some of our politicians want to be now. That is the antithesis of a well-raised girl. My mother insistently said, wait to be asked to dance. Do not be bold or pushy. And for women of my age, this still remains a powerful cultural imprint don't be bold, still rings in my ears. When I went onto the board of the ABC, my mother said, do not draw attention to yourself. I said, well, it's 1983, I'm 41 years old, or 42 years old, and it's a pretty big deal to be that. She said, just don't draw attention to yourself, but wear a red suit so that you stand out from the men. (laughs) What's the message? Teaching was my first career. And it was considered a very suitable occupation before marriage, because for many girls the only way to attend university was by winning a secondary teacher's college scholarship or a Commonwealth scholarship. I took the teaching one, which gave me four years at university. And after three years, and a bond of 500 pounds, which was a lot of money, so you had to teach for five years or pay back a bond of 500 pounds. But there was a way out. The bond could be waived after three years with no penalty if a female teacher married. Not a man, but a female. Now as we talked, and marriage was very, very important to us as an expectation, we thought, well, we can always marry out if we have to, if if teaching doesn't work. (laughs) But of course what it really said, and I didn't understand this for a long time, it confirmed the cultural expectations that work, let alone a career, was not to be the norm for women. The message was clear, marriage and motherhood were the perfect women's full-time careers. And so, good girls got married. I obediently did the right thing, and was married after three years. No bond to pay with my husband. Like many young Australians, we immediately left for London and spent the next three years working and travelling. And that experience changed me forever. Because what I saw and what I understood is that the Australian model of being female was not a universal model. But it was a cultural invention of its own. And there were other options about how to be female. And I was determined to look at what they could be for me. We returned in late 67. And I'd been teaching in London and Pittsburgh. And I love teaching a great deal. I was sure that this was to be my natural habitat and I look forward to a long teaching career. I went to the New South Wales Department of Education as a teacher with six years experience and ready to resume work. I also was newly pregnant and very excited and shared the news with the education clerk. The tone immediately changed. He lowered his voice. He explained slowly, just in case there had been some brain damage already. <laughs> I was going to have a maternal brain. He said, you can only be a casual teacher because the New South Wales Education Department would not, A, recognise my experience and it was neither wise nor possible to be more than a casual commitment. After all, I was to be a mother. And mothers did not work. I'm talking 1967. As I left the interview after agreeing to be a casual, even feeling grateful for the job, I wondered how a child-centred sector could discriminate against motherhood and fatherhood. I became a feminist as I walked out of the Education Department building up the road. However, as an interim thing, while I was thinking about feminism, which I'd been reading about in the US and the UK, within four days I was in the classroom, happy, planning to have a baby, settling into life in Sydney. And I joined the childbirth education because my next feminist act was I wanted to be able to birth the way I wanted. I'd worked in places where women were doing it with mirrors and having their babies. Their husbands were present. In London, the kids in the street ran home at lunchtime if their mother was having a baby to be part of it. So I joined with a group of people the childbirth education, which was a lobby group seeking birthing choices. It was deeply threatening to the medical profession, who wanted to keep control, which is not a news story. In May 1968, our first baby was born as we wish, drug free and my husband present. It's hard now to imagine that birthing would ever return to an event involving only a woman, her doctor and a nurse. It has become something for the extended family. I hear my daughter's friends saying 10 years ago, you mean you're not going to be at your daughter's birth? No, I said, she's going to do it with her husband, it's fine. And she said, oh, the whole extended family, birthing is an exciting family event. But these were my first two confrontations with the power of systems, education systems and medical systems, and the intractable thinking and the policy contradictions in them. The education system had committed to me They'd given me a scholarship based on merit, but they wouldn't give me a job based on merit. And there's a difference. They recognised there was skilled and dedicated teacher, and yet I could only return to my profession as a casual. It's such a double standard. This became a call to action for many women, many of whom were teachers, interestingly, and that was because we were the first and biggest group of educated women in Australia and we'd all experienced discrimination firsthand. And mostly, we joined the Women's Electoral Lobby. That's what we founded. What I learned during this time, is, though, is that systems can be changed, and that personal is political. You have a personal experience which informs you. If you connect, learn, and lead, the theme of this conference, you find other people in the same place, and you get strength in how to be able to deal with seemingly intractable problems. I think of myself in 1968 pushing a stroller in a street march with a baby, then two, then three. They were passionate street marches with hundreds of other women and some good men. We were finding our voices and it was easy to believe that the future was really rosy, would deliver equity and equality for women. By 1972 I was an active feminist, as I still am. What does that mean? Mostly, I apply a gender lens to opportunity and power. However, with the assurance of a youthful true believer in the early 70s, on a march I told Edna Ryan, one of my heroines who'd been at the forefront of many battles, that I was seriously confident that 24-hour quality childcare was just around the corner. She responded, if my three children's children had access to quality childcare, it would be a miracle. She was right. I was shocked that she could be so negative. She was right. I've just finished eight years as Deputy Chair of Good Start Early Learning. It's great, but we are not there yet. It was hardly 1963, though, in the staff room of a girls' high school, to imagine what a successful like, might look like. A decade later of consciousness raising through women's liberation and women's electoral lobby has changed how we saw the world. At that time, though, most activity was directed towards government leadership. We didn't even think about business. In fact, where I came from, as a farmer's daughter, people thought business was a bit tacky. Everything was about the professions and about government. That's how you got change, and people's desires for their family, Karen's probably, mine, would be to have a professional, educated daughters, people to go in the professions. Business came into the scene really into the 90s, but we believed at that time we could both be the agents and beneficiaries of change and that's why I was one of the founding people in New South Wales, was the founder of the Women's Electoral Lobby, which was and remains a feminist, non-profit, self-funded, non-party political group. And of course we had a shopping list, didn't we? We had things on our fridges. They said, equal pay, childcare, removal of the luxury tax on the oral contraceptive. Yes, it had a luxury tax of 33%, same as lipstick. What's the difference? Well, a lot of difference meant that women got pregnant because they couldn't afford it. Um, Access to contraception, abortion, maternity leave, education of girls, anti-discriminate legislation. And we just went shop, shop, tick, 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 until we got the end. Leadership was everybody's business. And in 1975, we had International Women's Year, And the UN declared it as a year, until then we'd had a day, like we get a day now for International Women's Day, we had a year and then a decade, 75 to 85. And in that year, feminism was recognised as a worldwide movement, which is why the UN came in behind it. And that helped establish the legitimacy of women's issues. Now this is mostly for many of you before you were born or just when you, you know, there's no consciousness for you, which is why I want to tell you that these are re- relatively new phenomena we are talking about, but they're s- deeply steeped in history. And during that decade for women, and with the leadership of Whitlam, who embraced change and promoted women, the luxury tax on oral contraceptive, was removed An Office of Women's Affairs was established. The Girls' School and Society report was underway to increase the retention of girls in school. Now, (coughs) girls outperform way ahead of boys in completion of school, they outperform post-school. In those days, I was one of 3% of women at university. And government was addressing the issue of feminism. So we were on a roll, we were fearless, cheeky, Gender roles were changing. We had posters, girls can do everything. Pillow slips, women on top. A women's place is in the House and in the Senate. Change seemed heady, fun, and we assumed it was permanent. But in 1975, I had to accept the inevitable that a career in teaching looked like a casual work and low pay. I had to leave the classroom. And so, after a series, 20 jobs I applied for, And got none. I only got an interview for two, one was for teaching and I decided I didn't need to do that because it was two days a week and the other one was to be a hostess, a history person who spoke on the Captain Cook cruises. So I got dressed up and off I went, did all my history, I'd done a lot of Australian history, blah blah. And as I got there I realised a hostess didn't actually mean talking about history, it was something else. And I didn't look like, despite having made a lot of effort, I didn't really look like the sort of person 60 men wanted to have lunch with. So I didn't get that job. I thought I have to change. So I looked at the things that I cared about and was active about. I was involved through women's movement with family planning and contraception. So I applied for the job as the media information and education officer for family planning New South Wales. It seemed a big risk. But family planning is a risky business and my world changed. Within a year of doing it, I was the Clio Sex Advice um, columnist, a job I did for 10 years. And after that time at family planning, after three years, I became the national director. So I suddenly had a Canberra life and I was doing policy. Now, people often say to me, how did you, you know, prepare yourself for other jobs? Mostly, if somebody asked me to do something, I'd close my eyes and think about it. And I'd think, if they think I can do it and I think I can't, I'm going to actually defer to them. I'm going to say yes, embrace opportunity. Risk taking is something that we all have to learn.
0: The word leadership might have been unfamiliar to Wendy as a teenager, but she's definitely learned how to be a leader over the past 50 years. Listening to Wendy speak, I was struck by how much has changed in the world since she first started work in the 60s, and unfortunately, how much has stayed the same. Women have to take the lead if they want to see real change, both inside and outside their workplaces, and this is exactly what Wendy did across boards, rights for body autonomy and by mentoring others. But Wendy has no plans to slow down anytime soon. Here's Wendy. After
1: I took my first board appointment in 1974, the company was put into administration 48 hours later. My husband asked me if I understood um, that we might be putting our house at risk. And I said, no, why would that be? He said, well, you know, we jointly own this property. When pe- things go belly up, people come looking for the money. I learned a big lesson. However, the company traded out of administration and since then, I've had a big board career. But before that, I was doing executive and non-executive roles. Like Karen, I'm bored with one thing. I'll always have a primary thing. It's usually my family. After that, it'll be my central career and the biggest commitment I've made. And after that, there will be things that I think add to the order of the world and the betterment of the world, and the order and betterment of me, and many other people. And I do like something that's a bit edgy every now and then. But from 75 to 50, 1955, I was an executive with some boards. And then I decided in 1955, when I left my last job as CEO, CEO of a law practice. That's a story for another time. How do I go from being a sex educator to running a law practice? Well, they didn't know much about sex either and I didn't know much about law, but somehow or other, we did pretty well. And established the portfolio career. After that, I called myself a consultant and a non-executive director and I set up McCarthy Mentoring 20 years ago, which my daughter now owns and runs. And that was a fabulous small business to create, and it was the third small business I created during that time, because I could see that collective action was not easily done by young women at this time, they needed independent, trusted advisors to help find their voices and to be able to challenge the status quo. Last year, 18, I decided to end my non-executive board career. I was doing an interview with a company director magazine. And Narelle Hooper asked me how many boards I'd been on, and I said, oh, I don't know. Anyway, I went away and counted 34. I thought, time to move on. So I'm moving on and reinventing myself. Not sure what that is yet, but uh, I'm working on it. But what I want now to talk about is what are the inheritance and the legacies for people in Australia today? And what are the disappointments? And these are the things that I've thought about a lot. Change for women has not occurred in the way many of us who campaigned so hard imagined it would. Our early assumptions that if we were good girls, we might have been naughty girls identifying things people didn't want us to identify, but if we were good girls and did our homework, the glittering prizes would be ours. If we followed conventional male pathways, that's where we'd end up. That has not turned out to be true. Women may be prime ministers, premiers, governor-generals, governors, heads of high interest groups, but continual discussions about targets and quotas, unconscious bias, women on boards, work-life balance, affordability of childcare feels like reruns of old conversations to me now. These are old solutions that need changing. It's a bit like shopping for clothes. All I can see are things I've worn before and they don't fit. So forgive me for being fatigued by well-known men and women discovering the issue of gender. "Oh my God, I've just thought about gender," someone tells me. I don't want to become a grumpy old woman, but I'm having some challenging moments. Despite over five decades of progress and high-profile women in political life, women continue to remain underrepresented. Progress is glacial. I know that every generation needs to do its own thing, but I wonder I worry that you may squander the fruits of feminism for fear of speaking out. The early women's movement was framed as a human rights issue. Policies were developed, equal opportunity, particularly in the public sector. And there were quotas. I was made Deputy Chair of the ABC as part of a quota. Guys, I'm not going to be a token. I'm there five minutes and I'm changing things. You just need the door to open. That's what you have to do. So we have wicked problems and exquisite dilemmas. Leadership cultures have been slow to respond to the aspirations and styles of female leadership. But the lack of educated women for leadership roles is not a supply issue. Do you hear that? It's not a supply issue. It's an issue of demand. You have to shape the demand to get your space in the decision making in this country. There are plenty of suitably qualified female candidates. We ask, need to ask why they are not selected. And we can look across the Tasman at Jacinta and say, here is a woman who was mentored for 20 years by Helen Clark, who was the prime minister, female Prime Minister before her, who has been allowed to grow and has taken agency over her growth to be the person she is. Not some hollow man who is trying to fill up the spaces with rhetoric. She is who she is and that's what we see. And most of us fall in love with her because we know that is the best way to be. But we're still struggling in a public way. And problems we thought had been addressed are re-emerging. Maternity leave. We fought for years to get maternity leave. But now I see women walking away and not taking it. Deciding it's all too hard. Childcare is still problematic. Part-time work often becomes the response. And this can be limiting in a future career. And I have to say, I I did part-time work for eight years. And I refuse to be defined by it not being available, but as I've told you, I had to change my career. So why are you accepting second best? It's in your power to change. Why establish a career before motherhood, I ponder, as I see a savvy young woman opting for the mummy track despite the reality and consequences of women's increased longevity. I'm nearly 80 and I'm not going away anywhere in a hurry. I still want to have a voice and get on with it. I wonder why women opt for full-time wifedom when the odds for enduring marriages are not good, especially in unequal relationships with one income. Use your brain. 13 years is the average Australian marriage. I know Mr Smith looks fabulous, but there could easily be another Mrs Smith. So why? Do the new thing by changing your name and take the name of the man you married. He may not be there for a long time. And you've all grown up with understanding brand. I was Wendy Ryan. I changed my name and I had to establish a new brand, Wendy McCarthy. I mean, that was a silly thing to do, but I didn't actually know that you could do it. I thought you had to take the name of the husband. (laughs) And why do it? Don't tell me about children and passports and that. Easy. Decide which brand you're going to be and the best relationships are always relationships between equals. And if Mr Smith can't hack it, you might have to have a closer look. My generation saw ourselves in a documentary without a script. We made it up as we went along. And we thought change was inevitable, incremental and linear. It's not inevitable. You have to be advocates for what you need and lead the change to the future you want. It's hard to lead change if you are in a relatively powerless and without funds kind of position. But mostly we can find the means. We did things for ourselves. We didn't ask other people. And there are still intractable issues for you to deal with. I made a commitment to myself two years ago that I would never ever address, no matter who the audience was, an audience without raising what I think is a terrible slight in New South Wales. It's around reproductive rights. The World Bank is fond of saying that the greatest, education, the greatest contraceptive in the world is education. The pill comes second. Access to termination of pregnancy is third. I remember taking my first oral contraceptive, thoughtfully provided by a friend. No medical intervention because, you know, they wouldn't give it to a single woman. It was, a, you know, one of those sort of kickers that would make a horse infertile after a short time. Anyway, I was in love. I'd survived one unplanned pregnancy, and I was swallowing this like there were no tomorrows. And it was un- the fact that you could have a contraceptive unrelated to a sexual act was breathtaking. Because many women of my age remember visiting the underground abortion clinics, and they're still there some of them. 30 phone calls from public telephones to arrange the visits. There are no public telephones. Driving to distant suburbs, passing through double doors after prepaying cash for the procedure. It was humiliating, shameful, and degrading. An experience to bury in the deep recesses of consciousness. It remains a call to action. How can it be in New South Wales that abortion is still on the crimes list? We are the renegade state in Australia. God help us, even Queensland has changed it. (laughs) Margaret Sanger in 1883 said, no woman. she was a social reformer, no woman can call herself free who does not own and control her own body. No woman can call herself free, thank you, until she can choose consciously whether or not she will be a mother. This is the kind of feminism that should make sense to you. It's the kind of feminism you discover when for 30 years you've worked somewhere, you've been one of the people, one of the boys, one of the crowd. And suddenly you find people aren't necessarily hearing you, your voice isn't heard, or you happen to notice that you're not paid enough. It's often suggested that's because women lack ambition. I don't think that's true. What I want to say is support what Anna Fell said in her Harvard Review piece about Do Women Lack Ambition? Women refuse to claim a central, purposeful place in their own stories. They shift the credit elsewhere. We're seen as generous when we do that. It's silly, but it's generous and silly. And they shun recognition. And without earned affirmation, long-term learning and performance are rarely achieved. Women are now experiencing the most powerful social and institutional discrimination in their early 20s and 30s after they've left the educational system and begun pursuing their dreams and ambitions. It's exactly the time when you may marry and have children and you have to decide are you going to downsize, hold on to your ambitions or downsize them. And often that happens when you're a new parent. We don't have to conform to existing practices, whether we define them as male or historic doesn't matter. My own experience is that we do not identify our ambitions until later in our professional lives when children have been raised, a good reason for not waiting until late. Sexual identity has settled and the capacity to manage relationships and do things described as feminine is no longer in doubt. It's often then that the mastery and resilience required for mature leadership is within our reach. There is no need to be in a hurry. I could never have imagined my current career as a working grandmother. So what's the task at hand? Ensuring full participation of women and girls is the greatest unfinished business of the 21st century. And that's another challenge for you. It has to be everyone's business. Despite some acknowledgement from men of this, it is poignant that only 10% of the ticket buyers in most events like this are men. They are not going to save us. They may support us and love us. They're not going to take the lead. We cannot get ahead by leaving half the population behind and nor can they. We have to fast forward, women and girls, and aim for 50-50 to start with. And what about men? I don't usually end up with a story of men, but I thought it might be nice this time. I love that Billy Bragg. So Billy Bragg's essay, A Map for Masculinity, was delivered at the Being a Man Festival. Hard to imagine they'd have one. We've had so many on Being Women that it's, you know, it's great that they've got the message after 50 years. But anyway, so Billy's there describing how, when he was invited to speak, he struggled to get a grip on what it means to be a man today. Most of the things he said that men once relied on to express their masculinity can now be done just as well by women. He writes that the elephant in the room is feminism. Women have begun their journey across the landscape of gender and persevering against great odds, and they've made considerable progress over the past century. He says, the question that men must ask And this is for your fathers, brothers, husbands, lovers. Are we going to drive on like a stubborn dad who pretends he knows where he's going when everyone in the car knows he's really lost? Or are we going to pull over and ask a woman for direction? It seems like a good question to ask the men in your life and do it for yourselves. Thank you.
0: And remember, that was from one of our live events. And you can become part of the movement by signing up at futurewomen.com. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, Executive Producer Jenny Goggin, Sound Production by Darcy Thompson.